I'm going to invite you to turn in your scriptures to Genesis chapter 32. Genesis chapter 32, we'll be looking at the first 23 verses. This is going to be a little bit like John Calvin in that Calvin was ministering in Geneva. He was an expository preacher preaching each week and not just on Sunday but also on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday. He had Saturday off. Uh, we had something in common on that as well. And, and then there was an uprising in Geneva and he fled Geneva and then about 12 years later, they invited him back, and they said, please come back to Geneva. He comes back to Geneva, and he picks up exactly where he left off 12 years uh, prior. Uh, well, we're not going away for 12 years, to my knowledge, um, but we're not going to finish this chapter tonight. Uh, and wouldn't, well, it would be quite a surprise if 12 years later, anyway, we're not going to go there either. But this is this, is this fascinating account, and I, I would say to Nathan, we were talking, and I said, you know, a few years ago, we had a very good friend, and he pastored in some very interesting places. And uh, one place was, uh, uh, he was in Utah for a while. He also did a little stint in Nevada and was in the northern part of Los Angeles. Um, and every place that he seemed to go ended up with uh, uh, casinos and drug problems and mental hospitals and, and so forth and so on, where he just found himself in these problem spots. And he went into... Uh, a long story about how he had talked to a lot of directors of, of, of uh, these mental institutions and he related the story uh, that took place in John Stott's life where John Stott was touring uh, a mental hospital and the director of the hospital said if these people would deal with their unresolved conflict I could send half of them home. He said they're carrying around baggage, they've been carrying it around for years and we're in this tug of war with these people trying to pull the baggage out of their hands so that they'll deal with the problems that they have and, and get on with real life, but they don't want to do that. They will not relinquish. Uh, they won't deal with the problems, but they won't relinquish the burden of the problem. And it's fascinating. You stop and think that, that Jacob, we keep talking about 20 years, uh, 20 years in the, uh, uh, the employ of, of Laban, but it's also 20 years since he left home. It's also 20 years... Uh, when he pulled the, the deal of, of, of uh, disguising himself as his brother and stealing the birthright. And there's a lot of hostility. And last words are very important, aren't they? And uh, if you've lost a loved one, and it's vivid in your, your memory as to what were the last words, what was the last conversation. Uh, Esau had some last words for, for uh, Jacob. Uh, I'll kill him. And, and so this is fresh in his mind, and now he's going back. Let's pick up the account, Genesis chapter 32, verse 1. Now as Jacob went on his way, the angels of God met him. Jacob said when he saw them, this is God's camp. So he named the place Manahem. Then Jacob sent messengers before him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. He also commanded them, saying, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed on till now. I have oxen and donkeys and flocks and male 
and female servants, and I have sent to tell my Lord that I may find favor in your sight. The messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and furthermore he is coming to meet you, and four hundred men are with him. Then Jacob greatly, was greatly afraid and distressed, and he divided the people who were with him, and the flocks, and the herds, and the camels into two companies. For he said, If Esau comes to the one company and attacks it, then the company which is left will escape. Jacob said, O God, my father Abraham, and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, Return to your country and to your relatives, and I will prosper you. I am unworthy of all the loving kindness and of all the faithfulness which you have shown to your servant. For with my staff only I cross this Jordan, and now I have become two companies. Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he will come and attack me and the mothers with the children. For you said I will surely prosper you and make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which is too great to be numbered. So he spent the night there. Then he selected from what he had with him a present for his brother Esau, 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their colts, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. He delivered them into the hands, hand of his servants, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, pass on before me and put a space between droves. He commanded the one in front, saying, When my brother Esau meets you and asks you, saying, To whom do you belong? And where are you going? And to whom do these animals in front of you belong? Then you shall say, These belong to your servant Jacob. It is a present sent to my lord Esau. And behold, he is behind us. Then he commanded also the second and the third and all who followed the droves, saying, After this manner you shall speak to Esau when you find him. And you shall say, Behold, your servant Jacob also is behind us. For he said, I will appease him with the present that goes before me, that afterward I will see his face, perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on before him, while he himself spent that night in the camp. Now he arose the same night and took his two wives and the two maids and his eleven children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and he sent across whatever he had. So reads the word of our Lord. Well, it is a fascinating account and it's an account that is very rich in history and it's an account once again that we have to pay very close attention to and have the proper context of the account. And also, in looking at the account, we need to see and recognize the language that Jacob employs, particularly in addressing his brother. And all of those are important factors from the account. Now, just go back in your, your thinking to chapter 31 for a moment. Uh, there's basically four acts in that. And, and these are almost like plays, um, obviously true plays. It's God's holy word. But there are certain acts in them that, that take place. 
And, and when you go back, for instance, to uh, how Genesis uh, chapter 31 began, it began with Jacob hearing the grumblings of Laban's sons. And uh, this becomes very frustrating. And then he starts to reflect, Laban doesn't treat me the way he used to treat me. And, and then uh, God comes to him and says, it's time for you to get up and get going. Uh, 20 years is well enough. Then the second act takes place in Genesis 34, about verses 4 down to 21. And that's the conversation with Leah and Rachel. You will remember, this is the very first time and the only time that Leah and Rachel are mentioned together in harmony uh, as, as wives of Jacob. And uh, so we have that occurrence that takes place a few times, about two or three times in, in that particular chapter. And then thirdly, we have that encounter with Laban. And, and Laban comes and uh, says, what are you doing leaving me? How could you do this? And, and he's talking about family values, wanting to kiss the kids and hug the kids and, and hug his, his daughters and, and have a proper goodbye and the barbecue and everything else that goes with it. And uh, then there's this postponement of, of his departure. And, and then uh, this becomes sort of a happily ever after event. Um, and, and finally, uh, we saw that they ended up making a covenant. Now, it's not a very good covenant. It's a covenant that basically is, is protecting one another. It's kind of an insurance policy. Lord, uh, make sure that uh, Jacob doesn't rip me off. And, and Laban's deal is uh, sort of the same thing. Uh, make sure Laban doesn't rip off Jacob. Jacob doesn't rip off Laban. And if they do, then bring judgment upon them. Now, that's not a very noble covenant. But we have to recognize something. These guys are crooks. They're not very noble. And they have deceived uh, constantly one another. And, and uh, Jacob has had a history of being a deceiver. And, and so now they are going and they are moving. And they, they've had the farewell uh, where we read the last words of, uh, of, of chapter 31 where Laban departed and returned to his place. And now they're on their way. And as we see them on their way, it is important to recognize that they are carrying baggage. Uh, and all of a sudden, they have this, this miraculous encounter that takes place. And it seems to shift the thinking of Jacob in a dramatic way. And as they journey along, it tells us that in verse 1, that as, as Jacob went his way, the angels of God met him. Now, it doesn't say anything really descriptive about what did the angels of God do. Did they do anything or did they just appear to him? Did they give him instruction? We're not sure. I don't want to speculate and try and make something up. I'd rather just say the angels of God came to him. And, and he recognized and said, this is God's camp. And immediately after that, if you look at the verses and if your, your end of chapter 31 is on the same page as your beginning of chapter 32, it's fascinating that Laban departs in, in uh, the end of chapter 31. And now all of a sudden, the very first thought that we have in verse 3 of chapter 32 is on Esau. And I rather think that, that Laban took a back seat in Jacob's mind after this encounter that took place. And so here, all of a sudden, his whole thinking is changed. And what's his thinking about? Well, his thinking's about uh, stealing the birthright for a bowl of soup. His thinking's about uh, Rebecca's mother disguising him cleverly so that he can uh, manipulate and, and pull a fast one on his aged father whose sight is, is uh, starting to fade. And, and he's got this all in his mind. And in his mind, of course, is Esau. He's moving into Esau territory. He moves out of Laban territory. 
Now he's on a route to Esau's territory. Now it's fascinating here that he could actually have avoided Esau very easily. Uh, it's not hard if you have a Bible map, you can sort of see and, and get a picture of this, that, that he didn't have to go to Esau. But there's another sense in which he has to go to Esau because his famous words that we mentioned were, I'll kill you. And uh, he was out to kill Jacob and, and mother warns him and says, you have to get out of here. Your brother is going to kill you. And so there's this thinking that has changed. And now Jacob realizes, having carried this baggage for 20 years of, I ripped off my brother, and, and we parted on angry terms. Uh, this was not a, a parting where he said, I don't think that Jacob's last words to uh, his mother, Rebecca, was, uh, oh, say goodbye to Esau for me and uh, wish him luck. I, I don't think that was the way it played out at all. It was, I'm out of here, and that was it. And there's no record at all of, of uh, there being a little interlude in those 20 years where Jacob goes back and, and relives the good old days and goes back home and, and visits the folks. Uh, it's not there. And I rather would think that he stayed the 20 years under Laban's employ, and it has been 20 years since Esau uh, saw him. And the last memory that we have of Esau is him begging his father, give me a blessing, give me a blessing. And when there's no blessing forthcoming, at least the blessing's rather empty, then it becomes Esau saying, I'll kill him. That's the memory. And here he is going in that direction. Now, it's very important as we fix our mind upon this tonight to see something very commendable in the life of Jacob. And it's this. He saw the need of reconciliation. He saw that need. And this is what he's going for. And it's funny how this all plays out. But we notice right off the bat, once we have this reminder, this is God's camp in verse 2, now all of a sudden the shift takes place. He's thinking of Esau in verse 3, and now he's taking charge. And he's commanding his men, and he says to them, verse 4, you shall say to my Lord Esau, he is on a direct course to see him. And he knows that he has to see him. And he knows in seeing him, there has to be an effort of reconciliation made. And he is the one that has to take the lead in it. And so it's at that point that Jacob sees the angels. And then immediately, Laban is in the back seat. Esau is dead ahead. And he's on his way for the purpose of reconciliation. It must have been frightening. We know it is because we're going to see that in a moment. But it's important to see and recognize that we are to live in a posture of harmony. And uh, we take that rather lightly, I think, in our day. I think we take that rather lightly in our church life in, in, that, in, in our day and age as well. I think that that is one of the reasons why there's so much church, church hopping that goes on where people go from church to church to church, leaving bodies strewn all over the place as they leave. But Jesus, of course, you recall, and we can look at this briefly in the Sermon on the Mount, and, and that is in uh, the book of Matthew in chapter 5, Jesus shows us the necessity of being reconciled. And in chapter 5 of, of the Gospel of Matthew, uh, Jesus tells us in verse uh, 23, Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, and you remember that your brother has something against you, you are to leave your offering there before the altar. Go first, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. And, and we get the picture of this, 
that it is important to be reconciled. It is very difficult to have people that are gathered at the Lord's table on a given Sunday morning and they're not getting along with one another. It's very difficult and hard to imagine that people would come uh, to worship God, bring glory to him, and have the cup that signifies not only the blood of Christ, but also recognize that we are participant of it. That's why that language in the Lord's Supper is so important. This is my body which is broken for you. And it's speaking and addressed to the company of believers that are gathered together. But the fascinating thing is the wording of the cup. And I don't know whether you notice that or not, but uh, the, the wording is very simple and very profound when it says, all of you drink of it. That, that pulls people together. That pulls them together as a company of believers and a reminder that, that we are a blood-bought people and we are joined together by covenant and being joined together by covenant, we are, are ratifying or reiterating the covenant again by drinking of the cup that shows that we are one in Christ and we are those who are our recipient of the blessings of Christ. And we're to labor to be in harmony with one another. We're to labor to get along with one another. We're to labor to make sure that we don't have uh, uh, simmering feuds uh, with one another. Uh, when Paul writes to the, uh, the church of the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians in, in chapter 5, he, he tells us what the brethren are to do in terms of admonishing the unruly and so forth. We've looked at that passage before in chapter 5. But the passage goes on and tells us that we are to see that no one, verse 15 of, of chapter 5 in 1 Thessalonians, we are to see that no one um, repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. And we're to labor at that. And we're to look out for one another. We're to help one another. We're to look out for one another, making sure that, that we're, we're growing together in Christ, that we're learning Christ, that we're, we're compatible in Christ, that we are a, a, a flock of, of people who are of one mind. And that's a labor. And it's a hard labor. And so we see the necessity here of reconciliation. And it is a ministry of reconciliation that God has given his church, isn't it? You stop and realize that, of course, in 2 Corinthians in chapter 5, where we're told that we are new creatures in Christ, but then we're told that we're ambassadors of Christ in verse 20 of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And as ambassadors of Christ, we are making an appeal. And the, the appeal is this, we, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Well, the only way in which that can ever be executed in a God-honoring way is that if God's people are getting along with one another and God's people are in harmony with God and with one another. It is a relationship that is, is, is a vertical relationship. God is over us, but it also has that horizontal aspect to it that we are on, on equal ground one with the other. And, and all of that, you see, gets thrown askew in the hostilities that have taken place between Jacob and Esau. And that has been simmering for 20 years. And now he's going in a direction that is going to lead him uh, right into the pathway of his twin brother Esau. And so the messengers are, are given a responsibility. And the responsibility we see um, in verse 4 
is, he, he says, thus you shall say, and he's rehearsing with them. Now, notice the language here, and it's very important. This comes up in the chapter more than once. He doesn't say, you shall say to my brother Esau. He immediately is instructing his servants to show that Jacob is using a word of Esau being over him. Now, in actuality, that is true, isn't it? Because Esau is the older brother. And so he says, say to my Lord, direct him to address that way. And so we have this picture. You shall say this. You shall say to my Lord Esau, thus says your servant Jacob. He is going humble. He is not going as, you know, I've got the birthright. I've got, he's, he is going humble. He's going with humility. And he is going for reconciliation. And he is going to do everything within his power to be the aggressor in, in reconciliation. Whenever there are odds that take place in, in, in any church family, and there's been something that has, has taken place where someone is wronged, you know what? Uh, what the, one of the reasons why it doesn't get dealt with is people are saying, well, who's going to go first? Uh, whose turn is it? Uh, I think he should go to him. Uh, no, I think that he should go to him. Well, I think, well, we, maybe we should have a committee formed on this. And somehow the thing gets held up on stall and nothing happens. And all of a sudden, a few weeks go by, and, and the fact that you have both parties present in the church at the same time, you sort of say, oh boy, we sure dodged a bullet on that one. No, we didn't. The hostility is still there. The heart, the anguish, the, the broken heart, the broken spirit, uh, the grudge, whatever the fallout is of, of the difficulty that has happened between the parties involved, it is still there and it will remain to be that way until parties are reconciled. And it's not a matter of saying, this is not a football game where we go out to, to, at the beginning and we flip the coin and say, call it in the air, heads or tails. Okay, uh, it comes down heads, you go and be reconciled to him. It's never that, it's that the believer is always to be on the aggressive for reconciliation. He's not waiting and saying, well, I think it's time that he come to me and so we can get reconciled. It's, it's time for me to do something to make this situation right. And so here is Jacob, and he's doing something. Now notice what takes place here, because as a result of what's happening, we have this fascinating aspect of Jacob's subjection to his brother, and then all of a sudden, off go the servants. And when the servants come back, they have some rather unnerving news for Jacob. And so we have the, the, this inventory is taken. I have oxen, verse 5, donkeys, flocks, male and female servants as well. Uh, I, I, and, and I have sent to tell my Lord that I may find favor in your sight. And so here are all these gifts that are on the way to Esau. And, and Jacob is probably hoping, well, I hope this really works well. I hope the letter comes back. Uh, Dear Jacob, it's been too long and we need to mend the fence and we need to be reconciled. I can hardly wait to see you. But that's not what happens. You notice the servants come back, and all of a sudden, we have Jacob facing what he believes is a hostile brother. And so the messengers return to Jacob in verse 6, and they say, We came to your brother Esau, and furthermore, he is coming to meet you. If the sentence had stopped there, Jacob would have said, All right, we're, this is great. He's coming. We're finally going to get this fixed. 
addressed, looked after. But the sentence goes on. Uh, he's coming to meet you, and 400 men are with him. And all of a sudden, uh, Jacob's feeling in his pockets. He's looking for his blood pressure medication, and the stress points have risen dramatically, and there's not enough B-complex to calm him down. And, and, and he's, coming, he's coming with 400 people. He is going to slice and dice me. We're done. And he's thinking the way that we would think. Uh, yeah, he's coming, but he's coming with, he's armed and dangerous. And it's at this point that we see something phenomenal happen. And it's this. And it's, it's, it shouldn't be phenomenal, but it really is. You know in your life, and I know in my life, that the first resort should be prayer. Right? You know that. I know that. Uh, my, my, my wife remembers this very well when I was accused of saying something in a sermon that I didn't say, and, and how I fretted and fretted and fretted all night. I, I should have been praying, but I was fretting, and two things happened. I didn't pray, and I didn't think. And you say, well, I notice you don't think. But um, I, I didn't pray, and I didn't think. If I had been praying, I would have thought. And if I had been thinking, I would have gone and got the tape and listened to myself preach. I hate to listen to myself preach. I sound weird. But it's the only time I ever recall listening to myself preach uh, for any length of time. And so I, I went to the church and got the tape and played the tape, played it until I heard the, the exact thing that was said. It wasn't even remotely, uh, remotely similar to what I said. And I said, there, I'm a happy man. I would have been happier if I prayed first. I would have been happier if I was thinking, if the wheels had been turning, but the wheels were on stall and the, the, the burning was going on and I was burning the oil in my brain instead of going before the Lord. And hear the news, it, Esau's coming. It's really exciting, Jacob. Esau's coming. He's bringing 400 people. And, he, and at that point, Jacob's not saying, boy, we're going to have to have a big barbecue. He's thinking more. He's going to get barbecued. And so we have this man finally doing something that we have not seen in his life. And he's recognizing God, and he's recognizing the blessings of God. We love to sing, uh, praise God from whom all blessings flow. We sang this morning in the Sunday school hour um, that wonderful, wonderful hymn based on Psalm 100 um, that, that reminds us that we are his sheep. And, and we, we sing that, and we sing it with joy. And it's, of course, sung to the old hundredth. And there's nothing better than a good psalm because there are no bad psalms. And here, notice what happens. 400 men are coming with him. Jacob was greatly afraid, verse 7. His immediate response. Why? It's based on the last words of Esau. I'll kill him. And Jacob is scared stiff. He's greatly afraid, which is a phenomenal way. It's the very best way with the limitations on the Hebrew language, which is not near as graphic as the Greek language. This is the very best way of saying he was afraid. He was greatly afraid. So this is really afraid. He's scared stiff. He's distressed. And immediately he plans a strategy. And he says, well, we have to divide the people up. We've got to divide into two companies. That way, if he comes and he starts to take dead aim on one, then at least some of us will escape. And I, I'm, I would imagine he was planning on being in the, the group that was going to escape. But then he calls to God. 
Notice the historicity of this. Remember how this happened. God makes a covenant with Abram. Then God makes a covenant with Abram again. He, he reiterates the covenant, and in reiterating the covenant, Abram's name is changed from Abram to Abraham. And then Abraham goes to his reward in glory, and Isaac is the recipient. And what does God do? He comes and makes covenant with Isaac. And Isaac is going before the Lord with the covenant promises of God. And now Isaac is gone, and now we have Jacob. Or he's not gone, but he's well up in years, and Jacob hasn't seen him for 20 years. And, and Jacob is now crying out, and notice how he cries out, O God of my father Abraham, and God of my father Isaac. And then he says, O Lord God, who said to me, and he's making reference to what God has called him to do, and he has postured himself in a position of obedience. You have called me to go back, and, and you've called me to go, and I'm, I'm sensing that I'm being led to go and reconcile with my brother Esau. I'm going home, I'm going home via the Esau way. And so he is laying before God his petitions, and he is claiming the promises of God and the blessings of God that have come to him covenantally from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob. And as a result, he starts to say things that we had not seen in the man. And he's showing that he recognizes God's blessings upon his life. Notice how he says it in verse 10. I am unworthy of all the loving kindness and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant, all of a sudden he recognizes something. This is a humble man. He was doing very well on his own. He had a good business going. He was making money hand over fist. He was really uh, Laban's keeper because the, the land had prospered, the flocks had prospered so much under Jacob. And sometimes success is too good, and sometimes it can kill a person because uh, all the success has come, and it almost seems that as this, uh, this success comes that there's no mention of God at all, no reference point of God. And so he cries out, I'm unworthy. I'm unworthy. He's humble before God. He realizes that all that has happened to him has not come on his strength, his intellectual ability, his shepherding ability. All that has come to him has come by a sovereign God. And he's not worthy of it. One of the hard lessons for us to learn is this. God blesses us not because of us, but because of him. We sometimes think, well, well, God's blessing me because I've done this and this and this and this. And the reality is God's blessing us because he's God. That's why he's blessing us. He is the God who has delighted to bless his people, not because they're so good, but because God is so good. And, and Jacob has come to terms with this. And he sees and recognizes God is a loving, kind God. And he pours blessing upon blessing upon blessing upon blessing to his people. 
it's hard for us in this culture. We've, we've got so much in this nation. We've been spoiled by affluence. And we don't recognize that that has come from God's hand. We think we've done all of this. And we're pretty proud of ourselves. And the nation is pretty proud of itself. And our, our, our leaders strut about as though somehow all they have to do is just walk into a McDonald's, as happened the other day, and life stops. And all of a sudden, everybody's all excited because the Prime Minister of Canada went to a McDonald's. And we're supposed to be excited about that when all it was was a photo opportunity. And one of the missing things that we find in our day and age again and again and again is the lack of humility. One of the things that uh, always stood out in a man like Ronald Reagan was he was humble. He was a, an earthy kind of guy. And whether you like the GOP or not, I don't know. But there was a sense of humility. And that's what is needed in leadership is humility. What was it that made Moses a great leader? He was meek. That's how he's described. He was a meek man. He was a humble man. He had his outbursts, obviously, striking the rock with, with the, the staff and not giving glory to God. The scriptures show us his weaknesses, but it is his meekness that made him. His humility before God. I don't know how to speak. I don't know what to say. And he didn't. What am I going to say to this man, Pharaoh? How am I going to talk to him? I can't talk to people. And, and God met all his needs. And you notice something, that when God met all his needs, that Moses did the speaking. Aaron had his part. But God had Moses doing exactly what God had called him to do. And Jacob is a, a recipient of constant blessings. The loving kindness of God. The faithfulness which you have shown to your servant. And now he recognizes something. He is a servant. He is a slave of God. And he humbles himself. And prays like we'd never seen him praying before. And then you notice he prays for deliverance. Now, that's a realistic prayer, isn't it? He prays for deliverance. And these are, are, there are three things, actually, that, that Jacob is doing here. And, and the very first one is, is, of course, that he does pray, and, and he goes before the Lord, and he does do some preliminary precautions as well in dividing uh, the family and so forth but it's the prayer and the prayer is that which becomes the, the driving point of this man and so he gives this call upon God and it's an honest call and it's the kind of call that you and I would call as well when he says in verse 11 deliver me deliver me from the hand of my brother he knows that his brother has every right and reason to be angry with him. Jacob pulled a fast one. And the fact that Esau was sloppy in his regard for the blessings of God does not negate the point that he was one that pulled a fast one on his father. 
and betrayed his brother. And so he's praying. And he is praying an honest prayer. Deliver me, verse 11, from the hand of my brother, the hand of Esau, for I fear him. And we have him doing that. Well, the third thing that he does here is that he is determined to make restitution. Jacob is standing on God's word, recall, and he's standing on the covenant promises of God and the realization that God has promised him, made promises saying, verse 12, I will prosper you and I will make your descendants as the sand of the sea. And he makes his appeal on God's promises and in having made his appeal on God's promises, he is set to make restitution with his brother. And so we have him after prayer spending the night there. And then he gets busy. And notice it in verse 13. He spent the night there. And then he selected from what he had with him a present for his brother Esau. And talk about laying on a present for his brother. We're not going to do a complete inventory. But you notice 200 female goats and 20 male goats and so forth. And he delivers them, verse 16, to the hand of his servants. Every drove by itself. And you can imagine this is all orchestrated. This is all arranged by this man Jacob and he has this grand parade that's going to go through the desert and it's going to be viewed by Esau he's going to be the, the reviewing stand if you will and he commands and takes charge in verse 17 and he commanded the one in front saying when my brother Esau meets you and asks you saying to whom do you belong and where are you going and to whom do these animals in front of you belong Notice again the language and the humility of this man. Then you shall say, these belong to your servant, Jacob. It is a present sent to my Lord Esau. And behold, he is behind us. And this was the marching order and the humility. I'm the servant and I've come to give to you and to honor you and to recognize you as the one who is over me. I, that's hard, isn't it, in our culture? Because we're so proud. And we want to make sure that whatever happens and whatever disputes take place and whatever reconciliation needs to take place and whatever has to be done, one of the things that our culture always demands is that somehow we come out looking good. And we don't see that here. We see this humble man. And Jacob wants Esau to know that he wants to be reconciled. There's a fascinating commentary written by a man by the name of Robert Fairburn long time ago. And, and he, he writes this. And, and he says, in, he quotes Ezekiel chapter 33, verses 14 to 16. And he writes, and he quotes from it, and he says, God spoke to Ezekiel. And then he says, if I say to the wicked man, you shall surely die, but he turns away from his sin and does what is just and right. If he gives back what he took in pledge for a loan, returns what he has stolen, follows the decrees that give life and, and does no evil, he will surely live, he will not die. Esau was mad at Jacob. And here Jacob is making restitution. 
And in that quote from Ezekiel, we have the realization that if heartfelt restitution is made, even though the man wanted to kill him, he must accept the restitution. And he is silenced by that effort of reconciliation and restitution. Well, we come to the end, and it tells us in verse 20, Behold, and notice the language again, Behold, your servant Jacob is behind us, for he said, I will appease him with the present that goes before me. Then afterward, I will see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. This is a man that wants reconciliation. This is a man that wants to do honor. We have a, a similar story in the New Testament in a different sort of way. It has to do with a little guy by the name of Zacchaeus, a little crooked tax collector. And when he came to the Lord, when he came to his senses, notice what took place. He had to make restitution. He had to make it right. It's, it, it would do no good for the credibility of a Jacob to just sort of say in his mind, let's just let bygones be bygones and pretend that it didn't happen. How well would that have rested in Esau's mind? It would have done no good for Zacchaeus to stand, the little man that he was, to stand before the throngs of people that were there to see Jesus. And we see this man up in the tree and Jesus commands him to come down. I'm going to your house. And this man realizes he's been a little crook and he's going to write anything, everything that he has wronged on people. It would have done him no good to stand up before the people and say, now I belong to Jesus. Jesus belongs to me. Sorry I ripped you off. There was a necessity of restoration, of reconciliation, and of restitution. And for reconciliation to begin, it begins when we first humbly bow before God and confess that we've sinned against him. Our, our sins are not just, as we mentioned earlier, vertical, but not horizontal. They are vertical and horizontal and we're to be reconciled to God and we're to be reconciled to man Jacob learned it and it begs the question how well have we learned it in our culture and it is a lesson that we need to learn and may we follow the Lord and follow the example that Jacob sets before us where he starts by acknowledging God and ends up reconciling with his brother and you don't get to see it tonight that's later on, but he reconciles, and it's a wonderful and surprising reconciliation. And it is wonderful and surprising, isn't it, when people that are enemies with one another all of a sudden are brought back together in union with one another, in union with Christ. Well, let's bow before our God and ask him to bless us tonight. Our Father, we thank you for the example that is set before us in this passage and we pray, Lord, that you would help us to grow in faith, that we would trust in Christ. And we pray, Lord, that you would teach us to keep short accounts with one another. 
that we would do that which is best for one another, that we would not wrong one another. And when we have wronged, may we be very swift in coming for restoration, for forgiveness, for restitution, that things would be made right in your sight and to your glory, and that we would be reconciled with one another. Guide and help us in these things. We all know conflict stories, and some of us may well know conflict experiences. But teach us, our Father, by your word, to be determined to seek reconciliation as Jacob was, and to be prayerful in seeking reconciliation as Jacob did, and to be determined to have reconciliation and to make plans for that. And guide and help us in that way, Lord, that we would follow that example and bring honor and glory to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.